Welcome to another episode of While We Were Waiting, where we share expert insight and true tales from inside the restaurant industry. I'm your host, Martha Madison. And I am your co-host and Martha's husband, AJ Gilbert. Today we have top chef alum and Bay Area rising star chef to David Fu on the show. We're going to share some stories and insight about inspiration, which is my favorite thing to talk about. But first... Well, but first, you finished a book that you wanted to share. What was this book, Martha Madison? Yes, a couple of weeks ago, I finally bought a hard copy book since I have all this time on my hands because usually I listen to audiobooks when I go running. And it was recommended to me called Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And before this, I had not really heard of her. And I do like a lot of the books about, you know, introspection. And I love memoirs, I love nonfiction. Um, but I just haven't really been reading. Um, so anyway, I got this book and it, I blew through it in like two days because it was mind blowing. Like I, I feel like I need to read it again now that I know what it is and what the purpose is. What, so what is it? What is the book about? Well, it's, so this is her third book and it's it's sort of a memoir, you know, about this really pivotal time in her life. So that's kind of the jumping off point. But the message is, you know, how she was able to move through, you know, ending her marriage and changing her life and um, and really going down deep to figure out who she actually is and what she is actually made of. And I think the message is that so many of us, you know, through you know, day-to-day stuff and, and just aging and, and the mundane life, you kind of can easily lose sense of who you are at the core and, and really why you're here. So it's really a book about purpose and introspection and, you know, self-forgiveness. And, um, you know, I think the overall uh, thing is that uh, to you want to – her th- her message is – you want to be able to be free while still being held, right? So um, that that is the best type of love is, you know, between two people especially is to both be held and be free. So mm-hmm. it's it's a message about how to do those things well. So what is the action item that you take away from this book? What what are you to do? What What would others do to actualize the advice in this book? Well, I think the best advice is to allow yourself some time to be quiet, right? Meditation, I think, is a big part of it. You know, really allowing yourself to to get in touch with your your deep voice, your inner voice, and really listen to what it's telling you. Um, you know, the other action item I'm kind of taking right now is I, I also mentioned before I signed up for therapy on betterhelp.com. I heard about it on Dak Shepard's um, podcast. And so I'm a couple weeks in. And honestly, this lady has got my number. <laughs> I mean, Your therapist, not yes, the author of the and, book. But. And I think that it's really in line with the message I was taking away from the book. And so 
you know, I'm kind of just taking all these messages from the universe or whatever you want to call it and realizing that this downtime is a great time for me to work on me. So the message is to sit still and find the truth of who you are that's existed since you were a child and how that. And harness that because that's actually why you're here, you know, use that purpose. But I don't even know what that means anymore. Like, I know I have a lot of work to do on that and I'm excited about it because, you know, my therapist asked me last week when we were kind of talking about this, she said, well, what's something that you could describe yourself as when you were 20 that you don't think you can describe yourself as today? And I immediately said, fun. I'm not fun anymore. I don't have a, a fun life anymore the way I did when I was young and and kind of free. And um, not that it's not wonderful and full of joy and a lot of wonderful things, but you know, that element of spontaneity and fun that you, you do lose touch with when you have responsibilities and, and family and things. So, you know, I think there's a way to find fun again and still be responsible and, you know, tend to my life and my family. So those are things I want to work on. Does that make sense? I think so. I, I mean, I, I think that what I what I'm trying to understand, and I know that you're really excited about the book and your enthusiasm comes through. I find that sometimes these books get us energized over something that is just an idea. You know, I, I read um the right, subtle but it's, art an, of not- it's an it's an idea that resonated with me and clearly with millions of other people. So there's I, obviously something to it. I'm not discounting the value it had to you. I'm trying to understand how these things can have value to me. I read the subtle art of not giving, not a, giving a fuck, mm-hmm. not giving I, a fuck. Right. I don't remember I anything book. from that book. I, I couldn't tell you. I remember there was some point where he's in South Africa and he almost jumps off a cliff or something. And I liked the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed the message was is you should have a best-selling book and then you can buy a townhouse in Brooklyn is what I remember No, actually, the message of that book is exactly the same message from Untamed, which is you are not going to become your best and truest and greatest self because other people think that of you. You are going to become your truest and deepest and most meaningful self by listening to only you, nothing else. But you're reading a book written by somebody else. Well, and it's causing me to take some time and put the book down and and listen to myself. I recognize how out of touch I am. Yeah, with I think it's one, the I, things I, that w- could make me accomplish and, and be and do all the things I've always wanted. I'm I'm very proud of you. Whenever you take this on, I'm very proud that you're doing therapy and that you're responding to it, and you seem to be enjoying it. I will uh, plug uh, Scott Galloway's self help book. Uh, the algebra of happiness. I got I read a lot that too. From that. Yeah, that was I great. Thought, I thought that was great, and you know, it's kind of like a business perspective of how to organize your life because everything is secondary. Whether you have a good career, or, you know, everything is secondary to whether you're happy ultimately. And right. uh, I, I agree with that sentiment because all the things that we strive for that we think are going to make us happy sometimes make us quite miserable. Right. And and if you could be happy you know, sitting on a rock in South Africa with your legs crossed, uh, and that's all you needed, then that's really all you should do. Um, uh, it's figuring out what that is, I think is the challenge. Right. I also think a great message from this book that I just read too is, you know, be very aware of all the things that we think and we do that 
you know, we think are so pure, but are actually just the result of generations of memos and stigmas that have been passed down to us and, and really take an inventory of those things and, and ask yourself, is this working for you? Is this real? Is this just because your mom was this way or your grandmother was this way? You know, is this who you are? inside? Are you hearing that from yourself? Or is this because someone told you that's how it's supposed to be? There was some therapist that I was listening to, maybe it was on Fresh Air or something that was saying that, that what the life that we experience is the lyrics, but we're really being driven by the rhythm and melody. Yes, yes that's it. That is it. And if we can hear the, the rhythm, we can make, you know, we, we respond to things because we think the stimuli required us to respond as we did, but really it's everything we've learned through our lives that's causing us to respond as we do and, and not really giving it the thought that it, that what the best outcome is and how we should respond to get that. That's it right. Is very, it is very hard to be aware enough of our emotions, particularly when we're feeling emotional yes. to respond rationally. And I, I really think that that is the greatest challenge of being you know, if somebody comes to you and says, I mean, it's, you know, for everybody that's worked in restaurants, you're working service, you're in your flow, you're having a good time. And somebody says, you know, my steak was undercooked and I'm never coming back again. And we start to get angry mm-hmm. and we want this person to feel bad because they made us upset. Mm-hmm. And all this emotion starts getting layered on when all we really need from them to get what we need out of our lives is for them to be happy. Mm-hmm. And if we can switch off all the software that's telling us that we've been offended, that we've been slighted, that this person is telling us we're a failure or whatever that is, we can we can actually get what we want from the interaction. But it is so hard to do in the moment and it takes so much practice. Right. Another another message from this book, Untamed, is to feel all the feelings. Don't try and you know force yourself through the pain or the the difficult moments because, you know, you don't, you feel like it's braver to just put it aside and move on that, you know, the, her point is that to real self-actualization is to feel and understand every feeling you're having. And I agree, it's hard to take the time to do that when you're working, you know, really hard, but I, I appreciate that sentiment. And I think that it's just a reminder that, you know, you should always make some time for yourself. You should always listen to that inner voice because it's usually going to lead you in the right way. And I think now more than ever at this time when things are definitely going to change forever, it's a great opportunity for us to take stock of, you know, how we really feel, how can we change? What could this mean? And, um, and, and trust yourself, you know, for the next step. And maybe the things that we thought would bring us happiness are not actually what we need and have never brought us happiness. And what is happiness, right? For you, that's about, that's your, that's the journey. Go inside and, and try and remember what it is that feels, you know, really happy and, and how that came to be in you. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I think you explained it really well. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's very hoo-hoo for a lot of people, especially, you know, the cynics out there like you, but no, I, nobody, I, no, no, nobody nobody with any level of maturity being cynical about healing and psychology and is is a luxury of the young as you get older you have to embrace it or else you will die sad and lonely 
That's exactly right. And I also, I mean, for me, one of the things I'm remembering about myself and, and know about myself is I actually love studying people. This is why I was an actress. This is why I am a recruiter. This is, you know, why I'm so extroverted and have a lot of friends. And like, I, I'm truly fascinated by the human condition. And, you know, I'm, I'm excited to work on my own. Well, very good. Very proud of you, sweetie. Thank you. So parklets, what is a parklet? <laughs> a great segue. Um, parklets, this is a word that restaurateurs across the country are going to start hearing more and more and more. A parklet is taking a parking space outside of a restaurant and turning it into a public space, usually with tables or benches or planters and stuff, but uh, the business that builds it can usually use it for private purposes as well. So along Valencia Street in San Francisco, there were a number of parklets and uh, restaurants would build them out. And technically they were available for the public, but most people that would sit there were dining at the restaurant. So you essentially get an outdoor patio out of a parking space. And this has become important because going inside a restaurant might kill some of us. And we're trying to figure out how to uh, be able to be together in the public. And it seems like being outside might offer some benefits. So two cities that I'm familiar with, I know that New York is doing a lot with this as well, but I haven't read as much. But San Francisco, uh, the Restaurant Association is asking people to support making it easier to build these parklets because that would allow restaurants that are operating at 25, 50% capacity to add more seats and it might be safer seating and it's getting to be summertime, mm -hmm. of course, Dallas, uh, where things move a lot faster in Texas than they do in California. And That's Dallas right. has already allowed these parklets to be built. In the Bishop Arts area. Yeah. We, I saw that, uh, that article, um, but the whole area of Bishop Arts is going to have lots of these little parklets everywhere. So I, I'm kind of like, I don't really want to go inside of a restaurant or go out to eat, but I do want to kind of go down there and walk through and see how they're doing that. Yeah. Support parklets. I think it's great. And I think it'll make our cities better. And for everybody that says, well, we're taking up parking spaces, cry me a river. You know, parking <laughs> parking is hard if you live in a good place to live and yeah. deal with it. You know, take Uber, walk, bike, you know, park yeah, and, and pay for what a what a novel idea. <laughs> you don't you don't you don't need to park really close to the place you're going. You should appreciate that if you're going anywhere interesting, a lot of people are going to go and parking is a challenge and that is okay. There are more important things than having easy parking. And this goes for when restaurants want to come into your neighborhood and apply for a liquor license and stuff. Shut up about the parking. <laughs> Prince and princesses, you don't, it, you don't matter that much. It is more important Oh. That people have a place to to have commerce and be together and sit together than it is that you don't have to circle the block twice and find parking. So okay. shut up about parking. <laughs> Sing it, baby. Boy, that connected. That must be that book <laughs> you're talking about. I I feel it. That's you my went, truth. You went down deep in there <laughs> talking about the parking. While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters, a full-service hospitality recruitment firm serving all of North America. For more information, check out our website at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. There was only one chef with the most votes. 
The winner of the first quickfire challenge is... Two. Congratulations. Wow, I didn't think I would actually win, especially with the talent pool. This is like the first real time I've ever won anything, so... <laughs> Enjoy it, you just want immunity. It's definitely a pat on the back from the other chefs. It means people were receptive to my type of cuisine. This is a great way to start off Top Chef. All right, now it's time to introduce our guest. Chef 2 David Fu is a Top Chef alumnus and also part of 2017's Bay Area Rising Star Chefs. That's a huge hot list to be on, and we are so excited to have him on the show. Welcome to... Welcome to... Yay, hi, guys. So that was your clip from Top Chef. Um, and I think we're dying to know, what was that like for you being not only on Top Chef, but you know, winning the, uh, the challenge? Uh, Top Chef was a, uh, definitely a game changer in my career, in my life. You know, I uh, never thought on an, in a national and international sense that my story would be told in that sort of capacity. And, and winning the first challenge was amazing. Um, I definitely count my blessings, and that's definitely one of them. So for all the chefs around that have not been on one of these TV shows, what is the experience actually like? I mean, what is your day like? How long does it take? What, is it, what does it entail to record a season of Top Chef? It's pretty intense, and it starts off with the interviewing process. And to my understanding is they, they filter through thousands and thousands of applications. So, um, and if you're lucky enough to have worked for nationally or internationally acclaimed chefs um that helps uh that helps you stand out in the application process a lot um and then also being connected to other bravo top chef alum that's uh that's that's basically a referral um so i was very 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 lucky so what kind of i mean if you are going into it and you're like i really want to win top chef you know what is the ultimate outcome after that that you're hoping for like is this the thing that makes all your dreams come true uh kind of yes and no um i think at the end of the day i want to remind people that it's tv and i think right uh, i'm not i'm not discrediting um the amazing talents that that win the show every year not not by any sense it's just you really, I think when it comes to any sort of cooking, you really have to know your audience. You have to know your judges and you have to know who you're cooking for. And if you're able to hit that, that what makes you a quote unquote top chef, an excellent chef. So you go to Colorado, presumably you're staying in a hotel or something like that. And how long of a period of time is the show taping for? So I think every season is a little bit different depending on what the agenda is. Some seasons they 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 they'll, they'll travel you outside the state into like a foreign country or whatnot. Some seasons they don't. It depends, you know. It depends on the producers. But my season, uh, well, actually, uh, generally across the board, it will take anywhere from about I'll say six to ten weeks to film, and it's aggressive filming, very very aggressive filming. Um, so the things that you don't see is how exhausted we are. And we'll go for six days straight. So we'll do three competitions. And then the other three days, we'll go into the, uh, what is it called? The green room. And we'll, we'll record for three days straight. This um, is where you're doing kind of your talking heads and commenting on what happened and how you felt about it and such. Voiceovers and all that stuff. So it's, it's, it's very, very intense. And 
um, the good thing about that is they put us up in a nice house, if not a nice mansion. And, you know, our refrigerator is uh, entirely sponsored by Whole Foods. And if we wanted anything, they would get it for us, you know. So uh, in, in, in addition, you're in a house with a bunch of like very, very talented, fun people and having a good time. Um, but that could go for the better or the worse. You know, it's like, you guys remember Real World on MTV? <laughs> like it's it's sort of the same formula and recipe. You put a bunch of like uh, a dominant personalities in a space for too long, they'll go at each other. So, so in addition to the experience of being on the show and the exposure that brings, you also met this whole group of colleagues that you're keeping in touch with. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. We're one big family. We we spent 10 weeks together. And I think in those 10 weeks, we spent more time with each other than we did with like people in our personal lives. So to let's go back to the beginning. I really want to know how you decided that that the culinary world was where you were going to go. And how, how did you get started as a chef? So I was a fat little boy and um, I would always hang out in my mom's kitchen asking when the food was ready. You know, <laughs> uh, food has a very special place for me. And um, just let you know that I'm a first generation um, Vietnamese American. Uh, my parents were immigrants. They were boat people. Uh, they came over here in about 75 um, and we landed in Oakland. And, you know, being this like very confused kid um, in a predominantly black neighborhood, um, I didn't know who I, who I am or who I was. And I felt that food was the only thing that really spoke to me on, uh, in terms of identity. Uh, and, you know, my parents, they, they both lived through war, let alone gone through war. Two of them, um, Khmer Rouge and the Vietnam War as well, the Vietnamese American War. And they had PTSD. And that, uh, having PTSD alone, they used silence as a coping mechanism. So they didn't talk right. much. They didn't know how to express emotion, all that stuff. However, when it came to food, um, naturally and instinctively, they were they were very very nourishing, and that's how I felt loved. My mom um, was committed to like planting small herbs and plants in the backyard, and you know, I, I remember she she would plant mint. And, you know, mint is like an invasive species. It, you plant mint, it grows everywhere. You know, and that was like the first real memory of food for me was eating mint from my mom's garden. I remember like it was like so bright and fresh and vibrant. And uh, I thought so it was I, amazing. I grew, up, I grew up in Mendocino County, mm-hmm. you know, about mm-hmm. 150 north, miles north of Oakland. And my mother had a vegetable garden and there mm-hmm. was mint everywhere and it was it was just a snack you'd be outside and you'd pick the mint leaf and chew on it and years later i had a restaurant in san francisco and our best-selling drink was mojitos and i was always so frustrated at the cost of mint (laughs) it should be free you know you'd have to weed it all the time and we have to pay like four bucks a pound for mint sometimes a year i never understood it i know right and the stuff that you grow it it tastes so much better because when you pick it and harvest it's still alive and fresh and you know, the stuff that you buy from your produce company, no disrespect to them, but like, I'm pretty sure it's like sitting in a fridge for about a day. So the, the people that came from Vietnam, the immigrants in the mid 70s, these were people that were fleeing from the the North Vietnamese, right? They, they were they were people that had were seen to have worked with the Americans and were no longer kind of part of the country. Is that a true statement? 
That is absolutely a true statement, and you know, I'm 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 very anti-communist. You know, um, that's the way. That's the, communism has a huge impact on my family. Um, there was a moment in time in history where they really believed in communism, and for them to truly apply communism on a large scale, they felt that they needed to quote unquote re-educate people, and re-education mm-hmm. camps was not too far from. Um, right. You know the Nazis and the Jews uh, being um, going into concentration camps, and this is something in history that we we don't talk about a lot because it's it's too painful for some, or it's just too much history to understand. But that's what my parents was running away from. You know, they were fearful not just of a system or a government, um, not just freedom alone, but they were afraid that they were going to get killed because there are other family members who, um, who. Uh, lived further north that were re-educated, quote unquote. Right. Right. And are your parents still still with us? Are they still alive? Yeah, they are in their mid sixties right now. Um, oh wow, they're doing good. They just retired. Super young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people people might not know. I mean, it's it's really unusual for a chef to have as much success as you've had at the age that you've had it, if I may say so. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. You know, in 2017, not only did you do Top Chef, but you were also named uh, by the San Francisco Chronicle as one of the rising star chefs in the Bay Area. 2017 was an amazing year. Uh, Paolo Lucchesi, which was the former food editor, um, was the food editor at the time. Um, he, he had come to a few of my pop-ups. I didn't even know it was him. Um, and then he left me a message on my cell phone like, hey, too, um, I have a good, I, ha- I have this important message for you. Can you call me back? I want to talk to you about something. Then he, I call him back about a few hours later and he says, oh, too, you're going to be uh, nominated or you've been dubbed into 2017 class of Rising Star Chefs. And I'm like, I'm freaking out, <laughs> you know? <Yeah. laughs> for, the, for those for those that are listening that are not familiar with the Bay Area, this is a huge honor. A and huge honor. The, the chefs that get selected in that, you know, that, it's like being a top chef, I guess it would be an analogous to, but it is a big deal. I think deal. it's even more than that. It's that these are the chefs that we know, given all of the runway that we can give them, are going to change, you know, the dining scene. They're going to add to it and make it, you know, unique and new. And and so those coming from the recruiting world, that's the list that we're looking at every <laughs> year, you know, and like following their careers and knowing that the chefs that come up underneath them are going to be a big part of the culinary world. So this is a really big deal. Yeah. Thank you, Martha. I agree with that as well too, is that I, for me personally, I, I, that's a bigger accolade for me than Bravo top chef. I I, I think so too. Well, I would love to know your opinion on this uh, because you know, you and AJ and I have all worked and had restaurants in the Bay area. And I'd love to know your opinion, especially coming up in Oakland, you know, how would you have described the Bay area restaurant community and scene before the pandemic? And, and where do you think it's going to go after this? Um, when I think of restaurants, I always think of uh, always think of community. It's a place where people gathered, you know, celebrated, live life, um, and, and that's not just on a weekly basis. That's usually a daily thing. You know, you go get your coffee, you have dinner, and whatnot, right? All that stuff, and that's pre COVID nineteen. And I'm very, very afraid and scared that um, post COVID nineteen, at least temporarily, at least in the immediate future, that that won't be a truth anymore. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I felt restaurants was a place where you could sit next to someone who doesn't look like you or, you know, sit at a table and talk to another person and share good vibes and good food with people who necessarily don't look like you or don't come from, let alone come from your same neighborhood. Well, I'm curious to know your thoughts on what the restaurant industry could do to become a, a safer, better, more sustainable place to work in the best world. You know, what could restaurants look like after this, independent of what you think will likely happen, but what would be the best result? I, I work a lot with um, with food companies um, that have a special interest in using technology and robotics and AI to move their companies forward. So uh, it's it's been interesting working in that space for the past few years and the way they build their business plans and the way they think forward is that they don't wait for something bad to happen and react, you know, and mm-hmm. that's the first time I've ever seen that. With, with food, it's, it's quite the opposite. We are trying to retain community and retain culture. So we do traditional things and we try to, we try to hold on to that stuff and move it forward. So, so innovation is not as prevalent in, in our food space, but this food technology space, they would, they would tell me the reasons that they're building faux meats and AI and robotics. And cause they said like, there's things like crop failure and the chances of a crop failure is huge. The chances of pandemics mm-hmm. are huge. So we need to, we need to be, we need to invest now in preparation of that. So that way when it happens, we can quote unquote win financially. And it's just mm-hmm. that sort of introduction and conversation for me just blew my mind. And they've been talking about this right. for a long time, for like at least the past decade. I got into it like three years ago, four years ago. I personally feel that it's still another like at least a year, maybe two years until our technology catches up where we can implement it into our restaurants to make people feel more safe. In addition to mm-hmm. having consumers fear kind of like calm down a little bit. All right. Well, it is time now for story time. And we're talking about love and community and passion. And uh, I want to hear what kind of story you're going to bring. So two, you're up. Yeah, let's talk about my mama. And I have this very interesting relationship with my mother, a beautiful, interesting relationship. You know, usually, especially as a chef, people would always tell these stories about Oh, I remember cooking with my mom and my grandmother and the other matriarchs of my family. And they all have these grape, you know, these vine ripened tomatoes in the yard. And I would run through it and they would like, you know, inspire me. Like, I don't have that type of story. I just don't. You know? <laughs> my mom, she never liked to cook. You know, going to culinary school and working for a few fine dining restaurants and world acclaim, all that stuff, Michelin, all that stuff included. People would naturally assume that I would find inspiration in the way I cook from those sort of institutions when in actuality, it was my mom all along. You know, a lot of the food that I ate at home or some of the food items I ate at home, I thought when they were cooking it, I thought it was Vietnamese. But it wasn't Vietnamese. It was Thai. So they escaped Vietnam via boat, um, landed in Thailand in a refugee camp. And they were there for about a year, a little bit over a year. And through that time, I think this is where my mom's innovation came in, was that 
obviously they didn't have any money. They had to be innovative. So she would source local ingredients, try to put things together. And as a source of income, just to eat, they would make street food out of it. In my very early career in cooking Vietnamese food via pop-ups, I would make it more Thai style. And, you know, I would cook it for other Vietnamese American crowds. And they're like, this, this isn't conchul. This is the Vietnamese soup that I know of. And I would have that conversation with my mom and they would say, and I'm using the reference of that same dish that my mom and dad would cook at home for me, assuming that it was the Vietnamese version, but it actually was the Thai version. When they got sponsored to go to the United States by a church, and she would do the same thing with ingredients here that she would see in Oakland. Um, my mom always says this, is that there's no, she doesn't have the ability to cook authentic Vietnamese food in the United States is because the United States don't have the same ingredients. And the way my mom cooked was very different and very interesting and amazing. But with her palate, she, she sculpted my palate. She told me what tastes good. I want to empower my mother and give her credit where it's due because even though she learned it via grassroots, she was extremely innovative um, and the way she cooked, I, I think, was cutting edge, um, even though it wasn't in like a food lab. Thank you guys for tuning in to While We Were Waiting. And thank you to our guest, Chef 2 David Fu. You can find out more about him on his website, Chef 2, that's C-H-E-F-T-U.com. And also on Instagram at Chef 2 David Fu. You can find us at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com and also on social at Waiting Podcast. And we have some great photos to help illustrate today's show on our website under episode pictures. If you'd like to share your stories with us, we totally want to hear from you. Send us an email over at stories at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. Also, if you enjoyed the show today, please leave us a review and share and subscribe where all podcasts are found. Until we meet again, stay sane and wash your hands. Take care, everybody. Once I rose above the noise and confusion Just to get a glimpse beyond this illusion I was soaring ever higher